the state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at an historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laugh as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We're here. We're live. Well, we're recording this live. Welcome to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Uh, my name is Ben. We are, of course, joined with our super producer, Casey Pegram. My trusty co-host, Noel, is off on some uh, lovely adventures on the other side of the country, but will return very soon. Speaking of returning, we are incredibly fortunate today to have our returning guest host joining us. Christopher Hasiotis, thanks for coming, man. Thanks for having me, Ben. Thanks for having me, Casey. Noel, wherever you are, whenever you are, however you are, thank you. Yes. Uh, oh, man, I can't wait until I, – I hope we can reveal some of the, the cool stuff uh, that Noel is working on. But I, what I really wish were happening right now is that we would talk about Noel not being here and then anyone listening to this podcast would just – slowly turn around, mm -hmm. and he's standing right behind them. Oh, that's great. No. <laughs> that, might be that's that's that. my dream. It's my dream. That's but, a good uh, dream. It's, it was also, it was Halloween recently, so maybe I'm still in that mindset. I'm definitely still in that mindset. Oh, man, it's the most wonderful time of the year. I love Halloween. What did, hey, what did you do for Halloween? Uh, dressed up as a woodland creature. I was kind of wolfy, took uh, the family around the neighborhood, mm -hmm. and um, did not accept any candy because uh, we've got a little baby who's not old enough for candy yet, and I, I would feel like a real bum taking candy. From a well, baby. <laughs> no, taking candy for a baby <laughs> who couldn't eat it under the pretenses that it's really for me, and I'm a grown man. I can afford my own candy. <laughs> there, there you go. That's, that speaks highly uh, – that speaks to your character in a, in a very uh, complimentary way. Uh, we'll see. You, your candy ethics are on point. I think that's something to be proud of. Thank you. I would have done the opposite. You I, would have just – Taking yes. a baby around. And, yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I did think like maybe it would be fun to push a stroller around the neighborhood but with no baby in there and just <laughs> be the person with a, an empty stroller. Oh, that's weird. That's weird, Christopher. But uh, it's not Halloween anymore, right? We should divest these spooky thoughts from uh, our, our souls. Right? I, I'm always so reluctant to give up the ghost of uh, Halloween. But you're right. Things move on. Progress. That's the name of the game for the human species, hopefully, in mm -hmm. theory. And today's episode is something that I, I thought would be fascinating for anybody who's a fan of words, anyone who's a fan of writing. Today's episode is about the strange origin of the Oxford English Dictionary. Now, this is something that you and I, in particular, have, have used pretty frequently over the years. I have, yeah. Dic dictionaries of, of many kinds, I think, come in super handy, um, whether you're a professional writer, whether you're an amateur writer, whether you don't really care about writing at all, but you want to know what a word means, mm -hmm. you can look it up in the dictionary. It's a great thing. Yeah, and it's funny that you mention this because Noel and I will often have conversations where 
we one of us is on a rant about something and then we decide to uh, use a word because it sounds particularly enticing, mm-hmm. you know, only to later, usually when it's just the two of us hanging out, only for us to later go, okay, one of us needs to look that up and make sure <laughs> it means what we think it means. We're using the right meaning where you were saying it properly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's what the dictionary is for, but also that's what Facebook is for too, right? <laughs> and social media. I think uh, anyone who is anyone in the podcast world is very familiar with mispronounced words. Uh, there's a lot of words out there and you might accidentally say something a little incorrectly, but mm-hmm. we rely on people like Ridiculous Historians, the Facebook group associated with this fine podcast, to point out in a constructive and critical manner any foible, any misstep, any misuse of a ward. A ward. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, you really put us on the tightrope here, man. Uh, all right, well, let's let's give it Ago. The Oxford English Dictionary has been around for a long time, but perhaps not as long as many of us would assume. The work on the dictionary began, I guess, in a larger historical context, is fairly recent. It began in 1857. Yeah, well, that's when there was a call put out for a collection of words, Mm -hmm. a definition of words spanning the 12th century to the present day at the time. Um, Work actually didn't get underway, though, until the late 1870s, 1879, I believe. Mm -hmm. And it took five years for the first volume of the OED, as the uh, kids on the street call it, to be published. (laughs) Right, right. And here we introduce our first character for this story, a fellow named Professor James Murray. It was a challenging assignment for Murray, who was the editor of this this dictionary. The way the process worked was relatively simple. People would send in entries for words, and the Oxford English Dictionary functions as what's called an historical dictionary, meaning it will talk about the development of a word rather than just its present-day usage. So you'll see a little bit of etymology. In the dictionary. You'll see a lot of etymology. I mean, the thing the thing about the Oxford English Dictionary is it's it doesn't just give you the definition of the word, right? It goes into the history of the word. We said the first volume of the, the dictionary wasn't published until 1884. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was a lifelong pursuit for Murray and his team. The final volume of the dictionary wasn't published until 1928. That's crazy. Yeah, that's that's insane. And and it took a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. Because we have to remember it was much more difficult to aggregate information back then. You know what I mean? These people had to literally write this stuff out, usually by hand, and send it via post. Yeah, a majority of us in the modern world, and I would assume most of us listening to this podcast, we live in a wealth of information. We have so many things available to us. We have so much knowledge available to us. But I think it's really, really, really easy to take that for granted, right? Mm-hmm. Like you just look something up. But – for you to look something up, another human being had to have put that thing in a place for it to be searchable in the first place. So, I mean, imagine the task of speaking a language and thinking, you know what? All these words we just said in the past 20 seconds, I just used 40 of them. <laughs> Let's catalog them. Let's itemize them. Let's label them. I mean, this is it's – a, it's a crazy undertaking. It's wild. Uh, you have to define – what a language is, what is inside the language, what's outside the language. You have to talk to linguistics. You have to talk to anthropologists. You have to talk to authors and books. And what's gobbledygook? <laughs> right. Which, is that in the dictionary? I don't know. I believe I it. I do, actually. It, it is yeah, in there, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that I think that's a very good way to paint the picture here. Professor James Murray knew this was going to be a huge, laborious, Herculean effort However, he underestimated the enormity of the task. When they first agreed to edit this new English dictionary, they thought this is going to take a decade. And this will probably be, gosh, I don't know, guys, around 7,000 pages long uh, in four volumes. Let's call it four volumes. But they ended up with something much, much larger. 
by the time the final results are published in 1928, it's 12 volumes long. It is comprised of 414,825 words defined, and it has almost 2 million citations employed to illustrate what they mean. As Murray is working on this, he builds a corrugated iron shed that he decides to call the Scriptorium. And the Scriptorium houses him and his small team of assistants, as well as this deluge of slips of paper that have been mailed to them that are each, you know, an entry in the dictionary. Yeah, and and this is all taking place in the UK. So this is just one country, you know. Right. This this isn't even trying to get the the breadth of global knowledge. Uh, I do really like the name Scriptorium. I imagine uh, Murray having a rough day at home. Maybe the kids are being kind of a pain, and he storms out of his house, slams the door, and says, I'm going to the Scriptorium. Mm-hmm. I can't handle this. To the Scriptorium. <laughs> to the Scriptorium. I love it. I'm just going to start saying that. I'm going to find something in our office. I'm going to label it the Scriptorium. It won't be this studio that's too on the nose, but I'm looking for a Scriptorium. Next time you shout, I'm off to the Scriptorium, <laughs> I... I'm really excited to see all of our coworkers look around bemusedly and confusedly and befuddledly. And uh, <laughs> but but you and I will share something. I, there we go. I'll know what you're doing. And you for listening. Casey, are you in on this? I'm totally in. Casey on the case, ladies and gentlemen. So as as people are responding to this call, this this crowdsourcing of dictionary entries, Professor Murray begins to notice that there's one shining star out of all of his correspondence, the most prolific, the most consistent correspondent, the man who has sent in more than 10,000 entries to this developing dictionary, a guy named Dr. William C. Minor. All that Murray knows about Minor is that he is a doctor, he was a surgeon, he lives in Crowthorne in the English countryside in Berkshire. And Murray reasonably assumes that Minor must be, quote, a practicing medical man of literary taste with a good deal of lesio. Lesio. I like, yeah. <laughs> sound, sounds like the kind of guy who would send in, uh, send in entries to the dictionary, the dictionary project. I don't, did they call it the dictionary project at the time? I think they did. I mean, dictionaries existed before the OED, right. so I think the word probably was out there. And here's, here's where we introduce our second character, uh, Dr. William Chester Minor. An American. I'm, yeah. Yeah. So you've got this American guy who's uh, contributing to one of the pillars of the English language. What do we know about Dr. Minor? Well, we know that, as you said, he does reside in the UK. He was... An American, not only an American, but a surgeon, not only a surgeon, but a veteran. A veteran. Uh, he, but he, he also had sort of a, a global background, right? So he existed in a world where many languages were available to him. His parents were from New England. Mm-hmm. They were missionaries. And Minor was actually born in Ceylon, which today is known as Sri Lanka. So he grew up in um, the son of the son of Americans in a former British colony, a lot of languages are kind of swirling around him. He's in that milieu. Uh, he comes back to the U.S. and he ends up fighting in the Civil War. Mm-hmm. He's fighting, but he's working as a surgeon, right? So he's a, he's a medical doctor. He's in the Civil War. He experiences some horrific things, as many people did. But um, it seems to have really taken a toll on Dr. Minor on his mental health, on his well-being. Mm-hmm. It was really rough stuff. I mean, he he was in situations where he saw sort of incendiary attacks. He witnessed other soldiers burning to death. Yeah. This is terrible. Um, ben, I don't know if you know about this, but mm. what Dr. Minor was ordered to do to a certain deserter? Right. Yeah, it's it's a terrible story. So he he served, as you said, in various incredibly bloody conflicts, including the Battle of the Wilderness in 1864, which was a bloodbath. The particular story we're talking about now concerns uh, an Irish soldier in the Union Army. Minor was told to punish the soldier, carry out his punishment, by branding him on the face with a hot iron uh, with a capital D for deserter. 
Yeah, so this was was a an Irish citizen who was fighting for the cause of the Union, but decided he was done with the battle, wanted to leave, wanted to leave the army, was, mm-hmm. I assume, captured, put in the brig, and, uh, and Minor was ordered to brand this guy against his wishes, against the wishes of both of them, I think. Mm-hmm. And this haunts him. This affects him for the rest of his life. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts about spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> you're right. No, it's it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. At the end of the American Civil War, he is still serving. He's in New York City for a time. He spends a lot of his time living in the seedy underbelly of New York. If he's not working, he's off in the red light district cavorting, mm-hmm. uh, having, a, having some frolic time, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's not uncommon uh, for... Soldiers who come home from war to have a really rough time, mm-hmm. to, to look for solace in places they might not otherwise have in the past, mm-hmm. to have a hard time uh, keeping things together, to undertake risky activity, to uh, – I, I mean even to see things that aren't there, to imagine mm-hmm. a reality that doesn't line up with the reality experienced by the majority of us. Absolutely. And by 1867, the army is completely done with his behavior. They find that it is unethical and amoral. So they transfer him to a remote post in Florida. And we're going to, let's, let's pause right there because Professor Murray doesn't know any of this. He doesn't know anything about Miner's past. He only knows that the guy has medical knowledge, seems to be living in either retirement or he's relatively well off. And the guy has a lot of time on his hands, and he loves words. Yeah, so that's a, that's a little background about Minor, and right. uh, and and Minor is sending in these entries to the Oxford English Dictionary Project to Professor Murray, mm-hmm. and they seem to be really great entries. They're really detailed. They're really varied. They are voluminous. They are deeply researched. What Professor Murray did not know was that his most faithful correspondent and contributor was writing to him from a lunatic asylum where he was confined for committing homicide. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, the, that's the strangest part of it. And it, it, it sounds like something you could maybe have a weird nervous laugh about, but the story itself is quite tragic. It turns out that Dr. Minor was not in full possession of his faculties. Yeah, and at this point, he had moved to London. Right, right. Okay, so he was diagnosed in 1868 as delusional, and he was considered a suicide and homicide risk. So with his consent, he was admitted to the government hospital for the insane in Washington, D.C., and officially retired from the U.S. Army. In 1871, he was released, and he visited his family and friends, and then he boarded a ship to London, hoping that a change of scenery would, quote, cure him, but his paranoia followed him across the Atlantic. And that's that's a not uncommon treatment at the time. I mean, we're, we're back in the days before modern psychology, certainly before modern psychiatric drugs, and any sort of treatment, uh, talk therapy, any sort of rehabilitation like that. I mean, there's just a, a lunatic asylum or a change of scenery. You know, maybe right. maybe something different will be nice for him. Maybe being in the United States is reminding him of the horrors he witnessed. Maybe he's too close to the brothels. Let's just uh, let's send him to England. Yeah, and his family had the means to support this travel because it was an opportunity that many people at the time could not have reasonably uh, pursued. But the problem was that his untreated mental condition began to worsen. He was having delusions, he was having crazy mood swings, and he was sinking deeper and deeper into paranoia. Particularly as his condition escalated, he would become more and more fixated on paranoid thoughts about people with Irish nationality due to that horrible story we mentioned earlier where he had to brand the guy in the face. He settles originally in a place called Lambeth, yeah, and, and Lambeth Street is – it's in London. Um, it's kind of a seedy neighborhood. Um, and this, I think, is the point when we should introduce the next character in this tale, the, this tragedy. Um, if we want to call it a tragedy, we're not the only ones because this is what ends up being called at the time the Lambeth Tragedy. George Merritt is the uh, next entry into this tale. George Merritt is a working man. He takes a walk every day to the Red Lion Brewery in London. And one day he's taking a walk and he encounters Dr. Minor. And Dr. Minor, who is in the grips of a mental episode, feels threatened, right, by George Merritt, believes that Merritt has broken into his room at some point and shoots and kills George. Yeah, and, and this, is, this is where I, you know, I, I tried to find some newspaper reports from the time and it's really unclear to me and... I think this is just the case in in reporting at the time, but I don't know exactly whether Merritt was trying to enter a door near where Miner was living, mm-hmm. or if this this happened near the brewery, or well, the so the records show that Merritt was shot in the back as he was walking away from Miner. Right. So Miner perhaps was in his home experiencing one of these delusions. And just burst out onto the street and thought that the first person he saw was the imagined culprit. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the authorities become involved. There is a trial. And during the trial, the full extent of Miner's insanity becomes revealed for the first time in mm-hmm. public. And that's, that's part of what propels the Lambeth tragedy to the stage of international news. Miner is eventually judged not guilty on grounds of insanity, and he is uh, sent to be detained in England's newest asylum. But they don't ever say how long he's going to be there. I think this is the sort of thing where, you know, on on the one hand, you can see this as a um, an enlightened treatment. You know, he's not just put to death for murder. You know, it seems like they're doing the nice thing. They're sending him off to a place where he can be away from people he might harm, but there's an understanding that there's something uh, not chemically operating in the mind. It's maybe not entirely his fault, right? So he's sent to Broadmoor, which is a place for the criminally insane. That sounds like a nice thing, but the conditions weren't amazing. And mm-hmm. people at the time, you know, it's not like they were called patients. They weren't treated as um, folks with a medical issue. These mm-hmm. 
the people at Broadmoor were referred to as criminals or as lunatics. Uh, basically, you're looking at a situation where you're put in a room, the door is locked, and there's not a lot of treatment. You're just removed from society. Minor did have his own cell, and Minor actually had a second cell, right? So he had two adjoining cells, the second of which was used for his significantly voluminous collection of antiquarian books. That's right. He was living the high life well, compared to other inmates or other uh, patients. But they didn't call them patients. They called them lunatics and criminals, right? Yeah. So he had this extensive collection of books. He was a very was a very well-read person, and the American vice consul general directly intervened uh, to allow Dr. Minor to have these amenities. Right, although he's in England and he had committed his crime there. He's still a U.S. citizen and um, a, a veteran of the Union Army, so there's some consideration being given. And he has correspondence as well the the entire time. He has relationships with book dealers, booksellers in Oxford in particular. And it is through this association that he hears about the open call for submissions to what will become the Oxford English Dictionary. And so a lot of this is lost to history, but we can reasonably imagine what – Dr. Miner's reaction was, it's not like he's going to go travel anywhere. Mm -hmm. It's not like he is living a super stressful life full of deadlines. As recounted in a fantastic book called The Professor and the Madman, A Tale of Murder and Sanity and the Making of the Oxford English Dictionary by Simon Winchester. And that came out in 1998? Yes, that is correct. As recounted in this book, Miner saw this as somewhat of an escape. You know what I mean? Uh, it's a way it's a way to his body may be in these four walls but it's a way for him to send his thoughts and his influence beyond his cell. Mhm. Absolutely and it's a necessary escape, right? But he knew regardless of his stability of time, he knew that his submissions might run the chance of being rejected. Essentially he might not be able to play the game if he revealed too much about himself. So he always signed his letters the same way, Broadmoor, Crowthorne, Berkshire, and that means his identity remained enigmatic to everybody who's working on the dictionary for years and years and years. Murray and Miner never meet. No, and, and I, I, at this point, he kind of builds up his own reputation, not based on who he is, not based on the letters after his name, if he's mm. a, you know, you, you don't have this weight of authority from your job, from your name, from your class, this authority that he gains with the OED project is based solely on his work. Mm -hmm. And through these submissions, I mean, they, they prove invaluable because he's got this collection of antiquarian books, books that are out of print, books that are ancient, books that are not widely used. So he's combing through these books. He comes up with this massive index mm -hmm. of thousands of words. He defines them. He provides their use in a sentence, which, you know, sounds like a spelling bee kind of thing, right? <laughs> but that's how you know what a word is. And the way you define a word is to see how it's used. And if you want to look at a word that you don't know or that other people don't know, you have to show how it has been used in the past. Mm -hmm. And that's where his collection of books comes in super handy. Yeah. And eventually, you know, you'll, you'll hear a couple of different counts of this, but eventually Murray decides that he has to meet his most valuable contributor. And this, this comes to a head in 1897. There's a, an event they're going to hold called the Great Dictionary Dinner. And Murray is very much looking forward to meeting his mysterious, again, most prolific, most accurate correspondent. But the guy doesn't show up. Yeah. So, I mean, they've been working on this dictionary. They put all this work into it. They have all these different contributors. They have people they rely on. Greatly. I mean, think of this as the, um, you know, on 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 Wikipedia, the people who have the verified accounts on the uh, on, on, <laughs> on Yelp, the super whatever Yelper, you know, he, uh -huh. like he's he's one of the insiders, and he's invited. We're told, and he doesn't show up. Right, and so Miner says, you know what? I'm going to be the change. I'm going to go visit this guy. So he travels to Broadmoor, and he sees this. We can paint the scene here. He sees this 
huge Victorian mansion and he's justifying those assumptions, right? He, they feel like they're being verified. He says, okay. Well, yeah. I mean, he'd never been there. Uh, the, the story goes that he thought – so he had this address. And so he thinks like, <laughs> okay, like this must be where a professor lives or a doctor, a, a medical yeah. man. Yeah, yeah. Um, a nice house. So he shows up and he sees this massive institution. He says, huh, I thought I was going to someone's house. This is an institution. I guess he's mailing me from his office. Yeah, he or may, oh, he's probably the director or something like that. Right. So he so he's starting to realize things are a little wonky, and he's just finding the most plausible explanation he can for it. And like you say, Christopher, he he thinks, okay, well, this guy is a director of this asylum because he can see the sign. Mm-hmm. He knows it's an asylum now. Yeah. And and it, it you know, it may even have uh, lightning bolts in the background or something. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I imagine that uh, you know, when you when you happen upon an asylum that you didn't know was an asylum. Yes. Thund- thunder and lightning. We've all been there. Yeah. And it's the the storm begins mm-hmm. and you have to stay there for the night, right? Yeah, the strings start rising and the fog starts rolling in we're or so, we're so not done with Halloween. Dude. <sighs> it's, it's in me forever. So he goes to – this is a true story, folks. He goes into the asylum. He meets the director of the asylum, and he assumes that the director of the asylum is the uh, famous and mysterious Dr. Minor. No, says the director. Uh, the, the doctor is an inmate. Would you like to see his rooms? <laughs> to which Murray, uh, Murray says, yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah sure. Um, to paint a picture for listeners and ridiculous historians out there, at this point, what Dr. Minor looks like is uh, a little wizened, fully bearded. I would describe him as sort of a cross between Dumbledore. Mm-hmm. Dumb- there's a little bit of Dumbledore and a little bit of Gandalf. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gandalf the White, not the gray, because he's got this like massive white beard. You know, it's like very professorial, but very learned looking, um, but clearly has been kind of locked up for a while. Yeah, and has it's very he, he, in Professor of the Mad Men, uh, he is described as having very gentle eyes that make him somewhat resemble portraits of Monet. Yeah, which I thought I thought was poetic and very kind. We do want to say there is one indication that Murray had some inkling of something being wrong with Doctor Minor because a visitor from America in the late eighteen eighties had thanked Murray for his kindness. The poor Doctor Minor. He didn't really know. He knew what something that was up, and, I, and that's he knew something. something but. Yeah, if if you if you read the Winchester book, you'll find that there's there's that story which we've just recounted, which is kind of the summarized and popularized version of of events. Uh, Winchester really digs into that and and kind of calls into question how true it is, mm-hmm. um, and or how close to true it is. There, like, as you mentioned, there's some question about. What Murray knew and when and the time of events. And this story did come out at the time and I think was probably kind of summarized and popularized by newspaper men at the time. Yeah, yeah. They were writing about it as it was occurring. We do know, however, that when they finally did meet, they became genuine friends for a long time and Murray would continue to visit Minor at the asylum. Again, this is the sort of um it's the sort of relationship built on words and work and Mm -hmm. trust built that way. So you could consider it a 19th century catfishing if you want. (laughs) But I don't see it that way. You know, they saw the value in one another. Murray valued the knowledge of Minor. And I think this is also a good lesson. I I don't know that the lesson was taken at the time, but I think for us looking back, it's a really valuable way to see that people who are incarcerated, people who have mental conditions, people who are struggling – with debilitation don't lose their value either to themselves, to their friends, or to society. You can have a mental breakdown. You can lose an aspect of your personality or your life. That doesn't mean you've lost your intelligence. It doesn't mean you've lost the knowledge you've accrued over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, again, we can also – you know, I, I feel like films like A Beautiful Mind or these, these sort of other films can romanticize mental illness too and say that it's uh, – that it's it's a struggle that's got to be overcome. Um, it's a tricky line. I mean, it's it's a it's a messy thing to deal with. Absolutely, and sometimes there are no clear answers for how best to navigate the situation, especially back then. And it's it just speaks it speaks so highly to Professor Murray's character 
that he doesn't reject this guy. He sees, as you said, Christopher, the merit of Miner's work, and he continues to visit him. He says, you know what? Nobody's perfect, but this guy is great at assembling these citations, hunting stuff down for him. We need to keep him in the game. And he spoke very highly of Miner for the rest of his life. Uh, in 1899, he said, we could easily illustrate the last four centuries from Dr. Miner's quotations alone. Yeah, I mean, his work was invaluable. His work was invaluable. And unfortunately, his condition continued to worsen. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool. I, yeah, I, I just remember it was my dad's. I, I was a hand me down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car. I'd get that car, and I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I was mm. in Mad Max or something. You know, I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac yeah. Bonneville's. Right. Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I, meant, I said El Camino <laughs> and I met Monte Carlo. I miss it. So uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. It, it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, you know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. In 1902, he began having delusions that he was being abducted from his rooms at night. and taken around the world where he was forced to commit sexual assault. And because of this, uh, during, during one delusional episode, he castrated himself, which is um, a, a very messy thing. Luckily, you know, he's a surgeon, so he at least knew enough, uh, knew enough to do it without killing himself. And his health continued to worsen. Yeah, it's, it's not the sort of thing that's going to push your health into a better place. True. 
And Murray, his faithful friend now, not just a colleague, begins a campaign on Miner's behalf. And he says this guy's been locked up in here for decades. He's one of the most important contributors to what I feel is one of the most important books in the world after the Bible. He's harmless. Can we let him out? And so Miner is, by direct orders from Home Secretary Winston Churchill, released from the asylum in 1910. He's released. He's instantly deported back to the United States, and he lives at St. Elizabeth's Hospital, where he is officially diagnosed with what at the time they called dementia praecox, which was a chronic deteriorating psychotic disorder that usually began in the late teens or early adulthood. This term was gradually eventually replaced by the term schizophrenia. Yeah, so it's the kind of thing that he likely was experiencing internally, physically, and then was um – I don't know, uh, triggered or or enhanced by his experiences in the war. Right, exactly, exactly. And in 1920, Dr. Minor passes away in Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, He had been moved in 1919 to a retreat for the, quote, elderly insane. James Murray passes away in 1915. And if you'll remember from our earlier mention of the dictionary, the final results of the Oxford English Dictionary were not published until 1928. So neither Dr. Minor nor Professor Murray ever got to witness or or direct, you know, they never got to hold the book. Yeah, their their life's work, it literally was their life's work and uh, they did not live to see it completion. I mean, but that's that's the story of so many – great accomplishments in in human culture. I mean, you think about something like the Sagrada Familia Cathedral in Barcelona that that Gaudi was working on it. He died decades ago and it's still underway. You know, it's mm-hmm. I think it's admirable to think that you might contribute something to human knowledge and to human culture that you will put a process in motion. And, you know, granted, Murray, th- Murray thought it would just take a a, a brief period of time to wrap up this dictionary thing, put a couple <laughs> words on a page, this, that, and the other, and we're done. Uh, no, I mean, we're, we're talking like it goes well into the 20s. But to to set something in motion that goes beyond yourself is something, I, you know, not a lot of us get to do. And learning the stories of the people behind mm-hmm. these contributions to society is so valuable because, I mean, you think about like the mathematicians, for instance, the women who contributed to the NASA missions – uh, that were written about in Hidden Figures and there was a movie based mm-hmm. on that. It's super important for us to know that everything we're talking about in history was accomplished through human undertaking. You just got to decide to do something, get past any structural uh, roadblocks <laughs> that are in the way, but push forward. And I mean, people can accomplish some really great things. Yeah, it calls to mind that old proverb, what is it? A society grows great when old men plant trees whose shade they know they shall never sit in. Have you ever heard that one? I, I haven't. I like it. Yeah. it's And that's that's the kind of inspiring, noble thing. We know that the Oxford English Dictionary is, in a very real way, a guidepost for the entirety of the English language. And... You know, I, I think we misuse the word sometimes, but it's it's noble. It's truly noble to be able to participate in something of that uh, of that level of significance. And here's hoping that we can all get a chance to create something like this. You know, that's a, that's a, that's a, a tall order, but we can try. Right? <laughs> we yeah. could. You, what you don't want to work on a dictionary with me for the rest of your life? Uh do you t- tell me about your benefits? <laughs> what, what, are you, what are you offering? Uh, you know, I, I've got a I've got a special on um, I've got a special on Doritos. Okay, because of my relationship eh. with Robert Evans on Behind the Bastards. Um, ben, have you ever have you ever actually? Are, so, have you accessed the OED digitally? Have you held an, a, a copy of the book itself? I have. Yeah, I mean, these things are massive. They're like tomes. The, the huge books, so dense. Um, the one now that, or like the most current one mm-hmm. that was kind of set in stone in the 90s has like 500,000 words. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen this. <laughs> Some friends of mine and I uh, a while ago gave a friend this as a wedding present, but you can buy the entire Oxford English Dictionary in a compressed version 
So it's kind of like the size of a big book. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but it it's in it's in two volumes, kind of hardbound, comes in a box, but it's the whole thing in there. And it comes with a magnifying glass. Yes, yes, yes. Because it's so the the print is so small, you've really got to get in there. But it's it's all of it. I mean, we're talking like more than two million citations. Like it's just it's so dense. And the look, that magnifying glass is not some cutesy marketing thing. You need it. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And I I don't know how people will react to this story. I'm fascinated by it. I find it inspiring, you know, and I really appreciate what you said about mental illness not negating somebody's value or their worth in the world. And Christopher, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on this show this week. Thanks for coming back. After the first episode, I thought you might be done. No, no, I, I stuck around this week. Um, but uh, yeah, if you'll, if you'll have me back, I'll happily be back. Um, I do want to mention one more thing about dictionaries just yeah. in general. I, yeah, I think they're do. super cool, you know, and we, we talk about these things that just sort of exist. But the, the very first dictionary that we had in the English language was put together in the 1600s. And it was a product of cultural mixing. It was a product of the Renaissance. It was a product of English incorporating so many words from other languages, from French, from Latin, from Greek, and from Hebrew – the first dictionary was really just a guide to what at the time were weird words or like <laughs> right. the difficult ones. So the very first dictionaries back in the 16th and 17th century CE, they weren't comprehensive. It was just like, okay, everybody knows the words we use. Here's a description of the hard ones. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I want to hear from some of the ridiculous historians out there. Maybe you guys can comment on the Facebook page because – when I was growing up, when I was using dictionaries, <laughs> I always had that one friend who would use the dictionary to to learn how to spell a word, which always seemed crazy to me because how do you look up a word <laughs> if you don't know how to spell the word already? But I know I know I'm not the only one who knows someone like that. I think yeah. even in like in the in the miracle worker, right? Um, mm-hmm. Maybe someone in there uses the dictionary. As a spelling guide, but maybe maybe Keller herself. I don't know, but um, I know I'm not the only one out there who's experienced this. Does anyone out there do that, or do you just use it to define things? I've always used it to define things. I've used it to define things. I guess you could you could use it to find the spelling of a word by attempting to go through stumble through it. You've got to guess, right? Yeah, you've got to guess. Pre autocorrect. Tell you what's a real pain, man. Trying to look up words in uh, English Demandarin Dictionary Ooh. just because of the different, you know, the ideograms versus the, uh, it's a whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> so so I, I also want to add um, a request to Ridiculous Historians. When this episode comes out, could you visit us on our Facebook page and let us know some of your favorite obscure words? We are enamored with strange, unusual, and anachronistic words, and it's no secret that the English language is chock full of them. You know what I mean? What, do you have an obscure word that you like? Oh, gosh. That's been stuck um, in your head recently? You know, one of the nice things about working here at How Stuff Works is you get to dive into all sorts of weird stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I did write a piece for the website a year or so ago on, uh, on archaic insults. <laughs> on words that were insulting a while ago and that today have fallen out of fashion. And I, I think that was kind of brought to light by uh, by the time our our president and the leader of a certain nation on the Korean peninsula were trading barbs back and forth. Um, and, uh, and people were like, what's a dotard? <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, so we decided to investigate not only that, but a bunch of other words like um, slumgullion, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm I'm drawing a blank on some Dunderhead of the others. Dunderhead is probably one. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. But anyway, I mean, all of this it just amounts to words, words, words. Mm-hmm. We can post a link on the uh, on the Facebook page, Ridiculous yeah. Historians. I'll post a link to that article, mm-hmm. so you guys can inform yourselves. And that does it for me. I mean, unless you need <laughs> anything else from me. No, come I'm back. Out. Hang out. Let's go. <laughs> Let's go. Let's go hit the scene. And as we said, our trusty co-host Noel is out adventuring, but Christopher, you mentioned that you're hoping he's just directly behind somebody. Wait, is he, is he, should I turn, Noel? Hey, Noel, how's it going? 
Well, hey, you guys. Uh, it's it's me, Noel. Um, I'm, I'm in Los Angeles in the in the uh, in my hotel room in the Hollywood Roosevelt, uh, which apparently is where Marilyn Monroe died. Um, I've been watching The Haunting of Hill House alone uh, in this creepy hotel by myself at night. I think I'm still kind of on East Coast brain, haven't quite made the switch yet, so I've been feeling like I've been seeing some apparitions hovering around this uh, really bougie um, canopy bed that I'm that I'm in. Laying in right now, in fact, podcasting to you fine people. Um, I'm really glad that Christopher was able to sit in and uh, talk about the Oxford English Dictionary. That's pretty cool. Um, sorry if I sound a little out of it. I, I've been I've been working late nights and getting up early. And as far as I'm concerned, I don't even know what time it is right now. But uh, Godspeed, ridiculous historians, to you and yours and Christopher and Ben. And uh, I'll, I'll see you on, on the flip side uh, if I return and don't get murdered by ghosts in the night. And that's it for today, Christopher. I hope that you make this a habit. I hope you return to uh, shed some more light on some of these strange stories of human civilization. And I let you off easy this time, pal, but next time I'd love to hear some more weird cover songs. Ben, I can do it for you. (laughs) Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Noel. Thanks, Casey. You guys listening out there, thanks thanks for having me. And we'll see you again next week. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon waterways can go where the big ships can only dream, through winding passageways of rolling vineyards and castled hills into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time. Special offers await at AvalonWaterways.com. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.